Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are back for part three of our, basically these sharp reunions just are going to continue for the time being because they're quite amusing. Uh, and Jason has been beavering away for a number of weeks now. We do plan to bring you an extended cast program, but we thought it would be fascinating if we got together some of the crew as well, because obviously all of the drama queens that are in front of the camera only make up a tiny fraction of the people that went into making sharp. Michael M is looking offended by that. I'm just, I, I play Triple M, Mr. Overdramatic. Over uh, so I'm going to introduce you to everyone who's here. So obviously Jason Salki is back, Rifleman Harris. Hello. We have Michael Mears with us. Hey, Michael. Hi, great to be with you all again. We have Paul Trussell. Hello. We have Lyndon. At least he thinks he's Lyndon. <laughs> um, um, Lyndon. Um, as far as crew goes, what I'll do is I'll go around, I'll introduce you all, and if you could all tell us what your role was and what that means for the layman um, in terms of what you did on the set of uh, Sharps. So we have Colin Thurston with us. Hey everyone. Colin, you were a props master. What does that mean? Uh, well, on this particular show, it was a bit of everything. Um, normally props do... They look after all of the things that the actors touch and use, uh, not particularly weapons on this one because we have people looking after the guns and swords. But on this show, it was everything art department-wise on the set while we were filming. So it was, uh, it was good fun. Brilliant. Uh, we have Ivan Strasberg with us as well, who's already uh, not having the amount of light infiltration coming on my Zoom call. Uh, yeah. Ivan, you were a director of photography. I was, yeah, on the first year. And what does that mean? Well, uh, well, I was responsible for how it looked on the screen, pretty much. So lighting, every, the way everything the set lighting, up. The lighting and the, the operating with the compositions, things like that. Brilliant. Um, we also yeah. have Alejandro or Alex Sutherland. He was a locations manager. Well, I was actually the third AD on the second shot. Then I was the unit manager taking over from Christian, who did the first one. Then I was the location manager, then um, the unit production manager, and then the line producer on the last two. Brilliant. So you got around a bit. Uh, what, what does that mean in a nutshell for people who don't know production? Well, I kind of think I did all the jobs that no one else wanted um, as <laughs> they went along. So uh, the, the, the people who did them the year before didn't want to do them the next year. So it was quite a good promotion for me because uh, uh, I was lucky enough to learn what Christian was doing 
from the first year into the second year and then um you know then kind of working my way up <laughs> we have robin sales with us who was an editor he still is an editor and um i worked on one two and three we also have phil elton with us he was a set designer hi hi everybody um Art director was the official title, but it is basically designing the sets like an architect and then uh, managing them while they get built. So liaising with all the construction guys, helping find the locations, everything that's visual other than a prop, basically. So if it means digging a 10-foot trench, that's would do that. Or if it means building uh, a city or a town, which we did out in Russia, um, we'll do that. Um, very, very. Uh, we also have Marissa Cow with us, who is a script coordinator. Sorry, can I interrupt there? Supervisor. Supervising. <laughs> script supervisor. <laughs> Jason, <laughs> you sold her short. I see. Yeah, my fault. My bad. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jason. I'll let you off. Um, well, basically, my job is mainly continuity, is trying to make sure that everybody says and does uh, the correct thing. In other words, following the script. Um, and making sure action. But I work very closely with a uh, camera team and also obviously with costume and makeup and standby props. So it's very much a team effort. Mm -hmm. We also, and we have Kristen Abombs with us. Uh, Kristen, I, Jason's put you down as camera crew. <laughs> well, in the first year I did, I was unit manager, so I was sort of more locations and sort of organisational kind of stuff from the background, sort of like the base camp and setting everything up, sort of logistics as much as anything else. And then I always wanted to work in the camera department and uh, I flipped to the camera department in the second series. Now I did camera department all the way through and that's what I still do now. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a leaping stone the first year to the second year. Really. But this is great because we've got people in Turkey, South Africa, Mexico, uh, at home here in the UK and Zach White is with us as well because it wouldn't be a shark party without Zach sitting there cackling on the fringes would it Zach? It absolutely wouldn't how are you doing Alex? Yeah not bad uh, we, we were actually recording yesterday on Waterloo weren't we but um, yeah so you're here if we've got any questions about accuracy and stuff and, and whether things looked right looked wrong or if you've got any questions that because basically you're here to hang out because you love this shit so um, absolutely. I've got no objections to that whatsoever. <laughs> Okay, let's jump into some, into some questions. We've had lots of questions coming in um, and we've been beavering away thinking of some as well. First of all, though, I have to ask, Sterling Godwin would like to know, Lyndon, do you remember anything yet? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Lyndon is actually in disguise today, uh, which is quite funny. Either that or he's just nursing a massive hangover. Uh, so, <laughs> Chris, <laughs> A couple of things came in um, which were uh, good fun because they want to know what the crew thought of the cast, which I think is highly amusing. Uh, so the question is, do you think that the chosen men um, had a slightly highly inflated opinion of themselves and overestimated their importance in the show? <laughs> They're all looking shocked and dismayed. I, I have to say, uh, working directly with all of them throughout the, the four seasons that I worked with them on, and all the rest of the cast as well, everybody was superb. I mean, we were all in a really awkward situation down there. Uh, we didn't know basically what the next day was going to bring us, whether it was going to be bad weather, bad locations, problems. 
Um, it was great to see people after the weekend because you know that they didn't get into too much trouble. Um, so, so actually, I and all of the crews that I've worked with and, and cast that I worked with for me, they were really good. Uh, they never balked. I mean, I had to give them cold food because I couldn't cook food on set. They didn't complain about that. Um, we had little moments where we did sort of snap at each other because it was six o'clock in the morning, halfway up a hill, and you're freezing cold. No, they were great. From my point of view, they were great. I finally remember a little bit of throw up, vomit you made for me before I had to throw up in, in Charlotte's mission. Thank you. Thank you, Cole. A uh, pleasure. A pleasure. It, what it did you, what do you make vomit out of? Uh, whatever I could at the time. I can't even remember that, that scene. But yeah, yeah, vegetable, vegetable soup, I think. Vegetable yeah, soup? Probably. Probably. Yeah, I remember one real. actress I had to give you her. You hope, James. Um, you hope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I remember one actress I had to give her some uh, cold peas, some peas that she was playing with, and she oh. was dividing them in the scene as the, the scene was enemy. going on. Yeah. And I couldn't cook them because the cooker that I had just broke that day, so I had to give them cold peas. And it was 30-odd takes of eating cold peas, so I had to buy her a bottle of wine at the end of the day because that was the, easy, the best thing. She was amazing on that. Helena Michelle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyone else want to weigh in on the chosen men? I think um, as far as my job's concerned, sometimes it can always feel a bit of a negative job because you tend to only tend to go in and, and talk to the actors um, while we're filming, you know, if there's something wrong or you need to alter something. So it feels, you know, slightly negative. But I have to say, I mean, when you think that when we first went out there, it was incredibly hot, incredibly hot. And the costumes were such, they were really heavy. And they had all this, you know, sort of equipment that they had to carry. And obviously there were moments where, you know, somebody would say, oh my God, really, do I have to put this back on? And you say, yeah, you do, because, you know, it's continuity and we're following on. And I have to say, they're all very good about it. And we were all in T-shirts and shorts, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, I was, when you explained what your job was, I guess, like, there's a certain, like, feeling, I guess, when you see you walking towards you, where you're like, oh, what's wrong now? What exactly, you know yeah, now? so it is a bit, it, I think for, for the actors it can be, you know, we, but, but I have to say on Sharp there was a huge camaraderie. I mean, I think we were in quite difficult conditions, but it just, I, I think it sort of brought out the best in everybody. I think as and, well. And on the flip side, Alex, yeah. if, we, if, we, if we couldn't remember a monologue, right, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> if we couldn't remember a line, we would just go, Marissa, what's the line? So she'd help us. So there's, a, there's two, two sides to that sword. Yeah, yeah. I was well. I was, I was, Marissa, you're, you must have had to have been like 100% concentrating all of the time on set. Yes, it's, I mean, you have to. You have to but, but I worked very closely to Tom, the, who was the director. So... I would be by Tom quite a bit and the, and the camera because that, that was where I really needed to be. But um, I, ha I have to say, I mean, I, you know, I went back for quite a few series more. <laughs> so it that's must be good fun. That's what I was going to just add to Marissa was that the camaraderie, the, the amount of times that the people went back, the crew went back. So we ended up being a pretty big family, um, I would say. And obviously in a family, sometimes you have, the odd discussion or the odd oh, yeah. argument, disagreement, and uh, it was forgotten quite quickly afterwards because there was always something bigger, worse that came along. Um, so, you know, you were kind of dealing with, you were really rolling with the punches. Um, Crystal sent in a question. This actually, is, this is for the actors. This is, I bet the crew can answer as well. Could you, do you think 
you would have joined the army at that time you would have been alive uh, would, is it a job you would have gone for Lyndon's just like is it uh, <laughs> is it a job you would have gone for I mean what else do you think you would have been at the turn of the 90s you mean in 1809 or yeah yeah god no, no. <laughs> I don't think I would have taken the king's shilling I, I hope I might have been standing in parliament or something Lyndon would you yeah. have joined the army uh no <laughs> what would you have done Anything. Dance. Dance. <laughs> dance. Dance. Yeah. And the army. <laughs> I must say, Alex, seriously, for about five minutes when I was about 18 and I thought I was a hard man, I thought, you know what? I could do basic training with my fucking hands behind my back and I wouldn't have mind trying it. But to join and to have to discipline and not smoke weed all day long, oh, sorry, and not uh, and, <laughs> and to, to, to deal with the discipline, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, you've already referenced Yalta, and one thing you cannot, I, do, I think, Alex, Alejandro, to what extent is being in the Crimea your fault? Because the colourful retellings of Yalta as a filming location, uh, not only from these guys, but also from the Hornblower cast, who complain that you lot bought everything that was remotely useful out of the Yalta Bazaar, um, <laughs> and it wasn't left for them. But... Who took the decision to take it over? And what did you guys think when you arrived? Um, well, it's not my fault personally. I would it, uh, blame it on my father. Um, and, um, you know, he, he, did, he, he did look for uh, locations and look to try and do this for seven or eight years before we ever got there. Mm -hmm. um, and he just it was impossible to make a show of this size already at the time we went into shop in 92 was the most expensive TV show in the history of British television. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the idea was to put the money on the screen. Um, and the only way to do that was to go to a country such as Russia or Ukraine, as it was then. Um, uh, or the, uh, no, it is. It is. Um, and, uh, and, and to shoot there. But um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty awful. I, I must admit that I was one of the advocates to go up, to leave there as, as quickly as possible. And then Sharp 3, uh, obviously, through all the problems we had in Sharp 3, we ended up in Turkey uh, for 4 and 5, and uh, here I am. Yeah. So. I, I'm really interested to know how that original decision was made, because, I mean, literally the year before 92, you couldn't get into Crimea, certainly not that area. It's so, so quick, isn't it? I, I can answer this, because I've, I've, I've researched it with um, Alejandro's brother, Stuart, um, and... Um, so yeah, so they looked at Spain, that was way too expensive. Um, uh, and then the, the normal place where those war movies would be shot was the Balkans. Mm -hmm. so that was next on the list, but then the Balkans war kicked off. So then a year later, that's when the Soviet Union sort of started opening up. That's how it kind of happened. So we could have been in Yugoslavia had th yeah, that. Yeah, we, we looked at Montenegro and we looked at uh, uh, Czech Republic um, and we looked at a lot of Hungary and kind of countries in Eastern Europe. But um, then uh, Central, the people at the, who, who commissioned it, they had this uh, East-West Association. And they said okay. to us, uh, you know, have you ever thought of uh, the Crimea? And we said, no, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't even know where that is. <laughs> and they said, well, we can, um, we can provide you with an army and we can provide you with everything you need. And... Uh, uh, you do a one-stop deal with us and um, we'll provide you with everything. Um, and 
you know, uh, that's how it ended up being, uh, going there. Uh-huh. Let me go around the room and just ask you what's your one memory of Yalta and the Crimea from being there <laughs> and, and what you thought when you arrived. Uh, Robin? Um, well, it, one, it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, because, as I just intimated then, it was an area where up until literally a year before, you, you would not have been in some of the areas that we were. Um, and so I, I found it just mind-blowing. I mean, I, for example, Richard Moore um, once took us, the, the, the crew from the cutting room, he said, well, come, have you ever been to Balaclava? Now, Balaclava, obviously, as we know from the Crimean War, was, was where the fleet was um, stuck in there and people were dying by the hundreds. Um, so we thought, oh, great, so we'll go and have a look there. Now, what we didn't know is that Balaclava was also the nuclear submarine base for the Soviet Union. I didn't know that, but he managed to blag his way in. I mean, whenever we came across a, a, a sort of sentry point, he would get out of the jeep and there'd be a clink of a couple of whiskey bottles and you'd go up to the post and you'd come back without the whiskey bottles and we'd go through. And we, we found ourselves in Balaclava and my assistants and I sort of wandered up the creek. It was fascinating anyway, just to imagine the Crimea War. But when we wandered up the creek, we then saw this strange hill, the other side of the water, with sailors walking round. And we, it looked like a James Bond set. We were sitting there and I sat on this hill taking photographs. I had my camera with me, only to hear behind us the sort of marching of feet and a, a an army patrol came right behind us and I thought oh dear as it turns out that was the main Soviet nuclear base for repairing submarines um, and you know literally the year before you, you, there was no way a sort of group of young western crew members would be able to wander up and, and be in that situation so I just found it absolutely fascinating to be in this sort of environment um, just to say what happened with the army patrol, all they wanted was cigarettes and none of, none of the three of us were smokers. So they were complete, <laughs> but they let us go. I thought my camera would be go. I thought, well, that's it. You'll take the camera. But um, they didn't. They, I just apologized and said, you know, we, 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 we won't stay here. We'll go off. And, uh, and he let, they let us go. But I mean, since then, I've, you know, I have seen that it, it is quite a, it, it is quite a major base and that the whole, hillside opposite where this base is is hollowed out it literally is and it is just like a james bond set where you go it you saw the sailors going in little sort of doorways and the inside of that was the repair base for for the submarines and the why it was at balaclava is because the submarines could go up the creek without breaking the surface of the water so so by satellite couldn't see what submarines so they could actually go into the hill underneath the hill without actually breaking the surface of the water. So that, that's why Balaclava is one of the reasons it was chosen. But I mean, that, that's just on the, on, you know, on the fascination side of it, on the basic side of being a crew member, a Western crew member in an area which had only just been opened up to the West, interacting with local people who were kind of open mouthed at what we had and what they didn't have. Was, was quite unsettling really it was mm. that that i mean i can go into that later but uh, I, I found it quite unsettling phil do you agree 
Absolutely. I mean, my first impression of Yalta when I arrived, it was shock and awe. It, awe because it was a stunningly beautiful place. I'm not, I wasn't prepared for that. It was like the best of the south of France, the best of the south coast of Turkey, um, beautiful sea, um, untouched countryside, untouched nature all around. And to get the opportunity to explore that, which I was very lucky to do because I wasn't sort of tied down to the, 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 sh the schedule of the unit so much. And of course, on time off. But to be able to explore the nature, the wilderness, which it was up there, was, was extraordinary. Um, shock because you also Yalta itself, there are elements of it that are very beautiful, lovely old French colonial kind of style buildings, all falling down, old Turkish style houses, wooden houses. Beautiful in their day, but all falling down, very shabby chic, you know, kind of thing. And um, but shocked to see that all the whole system there was just breaking down, and we were very privileged. And it took me months, if you like, to appreciate the fact that we were kind of rich Westerners living in a hotel, mm. and it wasn't really a proper hotel, let's be honest. But um, and where, where everyone else was living literally on the on the bread line, on the poverty line. And so it was, it was an amazing experience, but it was a bit like going into the Wild West. And, you know, there were, there were very, there was hardly any shops. You couldn't go and buy something unless you wanted a bottle of whiskey or cigarettes in the duty-free shop. Um, or a half a pence hammer if you're Sean Bean. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Sean Bean says he got a hammer for half a pence and he still... Yes, gets... you could go... Well, the one, one wonderful... Um, discoveries was the local market which yeah. we didn't know was there it took a while to it to discover but of course the local market where the rest of the town was there was just nothing to buy the food was terrible you go to the local market and actually the produce was beautiful or what they grow grew locally it was lovely but you could yeah you could buy uh, you could buy hammers you could buy carpets you could buy leather and these were all brought in by turkish traders that came in for the day and did their business and, and went off and uh you could, exchange, <laughs> you could exchange your hard-earned dollars for local currency there. Under the table, you know, it's all black market. And the, the second on, yeah. I did this all through the first year. No problem. Everyone was very happy. The police would be patrolling. No problem at all. The second year, um, I was, I'd take an assistant out with me. I said, to, I said to this guy, Dominic, come, let's go to the market. We'll change up some money. We'll be all set for enjoying ourselves locally. And he was like, well, I don't know. It's a bit dodgy. I'm a bit worried about the police. I said, well, don't worry. There's no police. Nothing. No one cares. Of course, on that particular day, just as I'm handing over $10 to this guy in the market, a hand on my shoulder, and these two huge policemen, arrest me and Dominic and we get carted off through the market and it was a bit of a midnight express experience through the market round the back where there was the meat market with all these sides of beef and goats hanging there all blood dripping through there <laughs> into the police office and uh, they just kept us there for a couple of hours and questioned us and all, all I did was just give the name of the Russian producer and I just knew that eventually that would be good <laughs> enough he paid, I don't know if he paid someone off or they were scared and they let us go. But it was those kind of experiences that were quite, quite wonderful. But, you know, at the time, you know. 
that's what makes the job interesting, isn't it? I never heard that story. Interesting. No, I, I know. I know that um, there was a, a, a blonde interpreter English, I can't remember her name, Helen or something, and mm -hmm. she went, uh, whatever, she was, yeah. wasn't there the whole time. She went with Sean to the Yalta Hotel. They had a bunch of drinks and they were stopped on the road and they were all drunk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. somehow uh, they got out, got away with it. Maybe they knew that who Sean was or knew what okay. they were, and they said, "Okay, on you go." I mean, there, there was a lot of stories of violence and guns going off and people getting threatened and whatever. But I mean, at the time, it was exciting, so we didn't worry about it. Um, anyway, I just like to say I'm very grateful where we built some of the sets in quite out the way places. Tori Castro is the one. Dimaji. What was it, about an hour and a half? Hour and a half? An hour, an hour from Yalta. Yeah, right up in the hills. And yeah. I don't think any Westerners, or Western Europeans, had ever been there before. I doubt if even the guys on the Crimean campaign mm. had been there. And it was quite extraordinary to go there. And they looked at us and we looked at their local village. I mean, you know, it was, it was a privilege. I went back there in 2004. To Dimaji. Yeah. Wasn't that cursed? Wasn't Dimaji cursed? Didn't we think it was cursed? It was called the Valley of the Ghosts. Yeah. Because there were dim yeah, Dimaji, yeah. Not not the mountain. Lines. Yes, we'll get there, Lyndon, we'll get there. Uh, okay, sorry, sorry. A lot of bad things something. happened there. All the bad things happened there, didn't they? Quite a few things, yeah. In nineteen twenty six there was a huge earthquake there, so that's why it was uh, they call it Valley of the Ghosts. Ah, uh, okay. Um, Christian, what about you? What are your memories of uh, arriving in the Ukraine? Well, just to go back to Dimaji, there was one thing that happened to Dimaji whereby I think we'd had something happened in some location, so we had to move everything out of Dimaji. And Dimaji was halfway up the mountain, so the only way to get in and out was down this track, basically. So you got all the trucks in, and then all the trucks had to come back down through the, through, through the same um, path. And it was night was falling and we had to get the unit out because we were filming the next day somewhere else about two hours away. And the first truck that went through was the toilet wagon, which was basically looked like Noah's Ark. With a ladder <laughs> went up left and right for male and female. Uh, it was on a flat, it was basically a little house hut that was on a, a flatbed truck. And it was the first one to go out as the sun was setting and the driver managed to catch the wheel in the ditch and oh. flip it and flip it full of no. shit oh, no. <laughs> with the entire unit backed up behind it as the sun's oh. um, well, I, I think i cried actually <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny chris anyway we got it back up one uh, of my first memories of you chris is in apethorpe manor oh god yeah that's right. and you and we, we i was asking where the bog is the honey wagon you're just yeah. but i described that uh, as um a truck with a hillbilly outhouse strapped onto it. Essentially, yeah. It's in my, in my book. Yeah, that's yeah, a pretty good description. Yeah. Ivan, when, when, we, when we first arrived in, in, on Sharp One, where did we arrive first? Was it in Simferopol? It was Simferopol, wasn't it? Simply awful. Simply horrible, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And is that where we were presented? There was a water problem. No, straight from the off, and we had to have buckets. That was on show three. That was on show three. It was at the bucket. That was at the Tavria Hotel. That was hysterical. And they turned the water off. That's right. There were water short. There was a massive drought for three months before we got there. I mean, it's always hot, but it was a massive drought. But it all it all came down to someone not paying off 
someone to turn on the water spigot or something like that. Like some kickback didn't get paid off or so they say. Right, Alejandro? Um, not, as far, not as far as I know. Um, uh, because I remember Chris Burt actually kind of um, paying yeah. a price for that. Uh, yeah. He, 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 yeah. Didn't, yeah. They have to, didn't they, am I going mad? Or didn't they drill or something to try? Yes. It's yeah. in my book. It's, yeah. it's in my diaries. They, they, got, they, they prospected for water behind the hotel. That's how bad it was. They drilled yes. behind the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do, I do remember. The money as far as I know. Um, because okay. we're all, we, all wanted the, we all wanted the water. It just, yeah. it just wasn't available. Yeah, I do, yeah. I do remember vividly um, coming back from filming the day that that all kicked off and Chris Burt outside the hotel with all these green buckets lying out. I said, well, what are those buckets for, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yours, go to the standpipe, you know, half a mile down behind the hotel, fill it up with water and then take it up to your room. I said, you're joking. <laughs> I said, no, no, the water's been turned off. Yeah. I said, but we're on the fifth floor and there's no lifts. He said, well, you know, you're assaulted. <laughs> and, um, and this included everyone, including Sean. You know, we all had to get our buckets, fill them with water and take it upstairs. And then the slight improvement over the next few days was that, um, I think Chris told us with a notice or something, that oh, there will be water available in the hotel between these hours. And it was for about an hour and a half. And it was in the an middle hour. of the day when we were all on set, apart from those in, in the office back in the hotel. So that was no use to us at all, you know, sweating, sweating, sweating buckets, to use a phrase, um, on set and coming back and there was no running water. But, but uh, actually, Mickey, it wasn't from a spigot. A big truck arrived with a, a big remember, water bowser arrived. Yeah. yeah. And we, and we all had like third world style, you were all going buckets. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. I remember getting back the first night and this bucket being outside my door and there was, um, was one of the art directors a uh, Bryony? Yeah, there was a Bryony. Yeah, there was a Bryony. And I remember looking at this. I remember looking at this bucket of cold water, and so and it was very, very hot. So we would all be very dusty and sweaty. And I said to Bryony, "I'm never going to be able to manage to shower with this one bucket." And she said, "Oh, I'll show you how to do a desert bath. You're no trouble. You'll be able to wash your hair and everything." And she was absolutely right. <laughs> so, in fact. It was fine in the end. Marissa, you flushed the toilet too with that. Sorry? You had to flush the toilet with that as well. Did you? I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah, there was no water at all. There's no water. Yeah, there was lots. So I suppose we did, yeah. Well, it would have been with the door. Water delivered to your door. You don't know how <laughs> it worked. Oh, it was definitely outside the door. I didn't have to carry it up. I remember that. We had to carry it. <laughs> Michael's incensed. Linda, yeah. what was your first reaction when you saw Simferopol? Ah. <laughs> have you seen the dramatization of chernobyl yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. oh was yeah. it really that bad yeah it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. that bad but it was quite ask julian bad. fellows julian fellows has got a great comment on uh Sinferopol. what did he say there's a I whole sort know. of monologue about it it's, it's somewhere on videotape i think somewhere the, um, yeah, the hotel was, was quite bad, I recall. It was, the rooms were very, very small and had cockroaches in them. Um, the, the, On request. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had, to, you had to order them. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that was the room service. Paul, Paul, <laughs> like, Paul cockroaches, please. <laughs> Perhaps you can describe for us the facilities in our little rooms in the Moscow Hotel, maybe. Oh. Do you remember them, though? 
What was the question, sorry? The, the facilities in the little bathroom, in the toilet, you know, the, the bog, the, the, the porcelain, the, the place you think. Was that the bathroom in the room? The toilet. They had the inspection oh, right. shelf, was it? Yes. Yes, yes the there was a little platform. Little platform, so you could do a you could do an early days of you could um, inspection. You what you eat, sort of thing. Yes, exactly. Uh, before you flush it. Yes, that woman from <laughs> Channel Four. She come in and yeah. check your poo. You know. That's it. Yeah. No, it was yeah. pretty. It was pretty grim. Oh, but, yeah, that was. Then, but then after after as as Lyndon so eloquently says, you know, after Simferopol, Yalta was just wonderful. Mm. Like yeah, the yeah. And there was a there was a yeah. I've got I've got photos of us all sort of sunbathing and you know. Brian Cox waving at me in his in his in his, his speedos. Um, obviously, I don't, I don't I don't share those around. But um, <laughs> there was I remember there was a. Do you remember, Jace? There was a there was a sort of a tennis a table tennis table, wasn't there? And we made of made it. of concrete. It was a concrete table tennis yeah. play, a table, and of course, no one could beat Jason. <laughs> no, not true. It was that we had our own little private beach. And you couldn't like lie on the shingle stone, so you had to get those little wooden. Remember those little wooden uh, lie down things, you know? Yeah. You had like, to. Then you couldn't find one when it was busy, so like a to, recliner, like, like a wooden recliner. Kind yeah, of. like a, a pallet basically. It was a pallet, yes. a long, a long one. And you know, all the Germans got there first. <laughs> Michael, uh, just one of the things I remember in, in the in the gardens, but I think at the second hotel on the second tour, what was that called? The second hotel, the Chernomori. Thank you. I think it was there. There was a reflexology pit. Yes. No, that was in, the first place. Very um, unkempt and uncared for gardens at the back. But a reflexology pit of about five different kinds of stone and gravel that you could walk up and down. There was a sort of faded map on the wall of, you know, the human foot and which parts of it would be affected if you walk in this bit of pit. Oh, I had hours of fun there. Hours of fun. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by it, Michael. I write about it in my book. It was, it was next to our bar, which was called, Paul Trussell? Lyndon's bar. No, the goat and balalaika. The goat and balalaika, of course. Which, you named it that, Paul. Yes, I did. You're right. You did, you did. Oh. Uh, were any of you guys on the in crew on the India part? Yeah, no. I was. Okay. I was on the last one. Uh, the first India. The last India. Uh, so this is this one is uh, this has come from Beanland, which they're a German Sean Bean's uh, like fan club, and they've uh, asked. They want to know about the locations in India. Um, that were described in the novels hadn't really survived the time and the filming locations. How did you go about recreating some of that for the filming purposes? Was that a particular challenge? Well, I, I was kind of responsible for that. Uh, I can take a responsibility for that one, uh, not for the previous ones. Um, yeah, I went out to India and uh, and set set up those those two shops. Um, they were really hard to find those locations because what we were trying to do is we were trying to do a feature film and two two different like a mini series of shot, and there was just too much variety because it was a kind of road movie. We needed palaces and and what have you. So um, we ended up using uh, Udaipur, no um, Jodhpur and Jaipur, um, and we used the palaces there on on the first year. And uh, we just kind of set dressed them, actually, uh, and they were they were pretty much in, in good in, in good tact. So you didn't have to build. I think they wanted to know if you had to full on build any palaces or anything like that to use. No, no, we didn't. 
we didn't have to build anything. Uh, everything was already there and we just built onto it and added onto to what was already existing. Um, we have a couple of script questions. Uh, Marissa, I think people saw that we had someone with script in their job title coming on and uh, think that you may have uh, been involved in the script writing. Uh, no. Maybe some of you can help with these. Um, first of all, I've been told to ask Marissa, had she heard any rumours about how dodgy this lot were before she arrived on Sharp? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> I didn't realise they were all so dodgy. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about it at all, really. Um, I, hadn't known, I didn't know anybody that had worked on it. And um, it was just a real adventure. Um, it was great. I think there were quite a few. I think uh, Jaquetta was new the year I did it, I think, started, I think. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, yes. Um, right. And Fiona, yeah. I, I don't know. So, yeah. In this first year, makeup. Um, no, she started in the second year. Oh, did she? So Fiona was. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I, I didn't. I didn't know anybody. So. Um, was it um, looking at the big group photos and that? Is it quite male dominated as well? Very male dominated, yeah. Mm. Well, obviously with the cast um, and stuff, but yeah. I doubt it would even out with the crew. But you never, but you never felt like that. I have to say, I, I never felt that that it was male dominated. If you see what I mean, yeah. Because, as I say, it was very much a family. You you, you felt very much a family, and considering I joined in the third year. I was. I never felt as though um, I didn't belong or hadn't been there, or everyone was worked very much together as much as possible. I think um, all of you were saying before we came on air, really, that it it's it rates really highly on your experiences throughout your careers of things that you've worked on. Robin, you're nodding. Mm, definitely. No, I mean it was, it, the whole experience was mind blowing, really, um, especially the first year. When, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was uh, I mean, you know, everybody knows the history of the first year, which, where everything started on one, in one particular direction with one particular director. Um, I have to be a little bit careful what I say, but, yeah. um, which ground to a halt um, after the famous football match and Paul eventually saying, blow this for a lark, I'm going to get myself sorted out back in the UK. Um, we stayed on. As, as the editing team, we were told, you stay there. Everybody else, we waved everybody else goodbye. Um, I can't remember the name of the first hotel we were in. What was Rossia. Rossia. Yeah. Well, the first one was the Moscow Hotel in Simferopol. Yeah. And then we moved to the Rossia Sanatorium. The Rossia. It was the Rossia. That, that was the lovely old, well, I say yes. old, the one that was built in the Second World War. That was the one from The Shining. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, the um, everybody else pissed off, and we, we were uh, we we were left there because we were told, "Don't worry, you know, we'll get this up and running again. You know, we, we'll sort it out. Paul sort himself out." And of course, we stayed there, so we were on our own there. And uh, but eventually, we, the news came that no, Paul wasn't going to carry on, and everything seemed to be going to pieces. So we were told, "No, no, okay, pack up your bags again, pack up." This amazing, at the time, brand new type of editing, which was this new flashy computerized system, which had never been used. I have to say, Sharp was the first major drama that was ever cut on the, the so-called new, well, it was Lightworks, um, this new computerized system. 
I mean, I can remember as an editor when I was told this right at the beginning and I was given the job by Jim Goddard and he said, oh, we're using this, this new, new system. And I said, what, we're going to go in sort of effectively behind the Iron Curtain with a, with a brand new computerized system with no backup, nothing. And that's when I insisted that I took one person with me who knew the system. And so this guy called Adam, who worked for the company, Lightworks Company, came out with me. But um, we were left that we were eventually told, no, pack it all up, pack all the stuff in the, uh, onto the lorries, because the whole thing's gone. The whole th shark is finished. And we thought, oh, well, that's, that's a shame. But I, I, I'm going to tread on a few toes here. Um, it, when, I when I saw the first series of rushes that came through, um, I, and I'd be very interested to know Ivan's take on this as well. When the first load of rushes that started to come through, directed by Jim, um, I was not happy, in, to put this in so many words. Um, and I can remember Malcolm coming, Malcolm Craddock coming in and saying, well, well, Robin, what do you think? What do you think? And I just, I can't lie. I, I have to say, look, I'm really, I'm actually really quite worried. Now, Ivan, one of the problems was that Jim wouldn't overlap. He wouldn't overlap section you know he would shoot that bit then that bit and then that bit and there was very little and i said well i have no options here i can only do this and i can only do that and i can only. so i was actually getting quite disappointed with the first lot of material um including when i said when i pointed out i said well you do know malcolm that this big scene where they come in with the union flag flying is actually flying upside down which as we all know is distress <laughs> so the union jacks upside down you could at least get that right anyway um to cut a long story short we we all the equipment was loaded back onto trucks because it had to go by truck up back up to moscow um and we flew back and then we heard that of course in in that gap when we were flying back and everything tom came on sean came on when the rushes came through the reshot scenes that you'd already done with Paul, Paul McGann, nothing against Paul, but it was chalk and cheese. The quality of Tom's, the rushes that started to come in, the first lot of rushes that were shot um, after Tom Clegg joined the, the whole thing were just staggeringly good. And we were just in London saying, my God, this is, it, it was just fantastic. Um, of course, what we had, yes, the same, we had the same scenes. We had the scene with Paul and Dara and all the rest of it. And then we had the same scene again shot, you know, with, with, with uh, Sean. And the difference was just amazing. I mean, it suddenly sparkled and came to life. So um, it, that... That was absolutely fascinating to see. And, you know, I, 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 if I get to say nothing else, I've got so much praise for Tom Clegg. The quality of the work that he produced, and, you know, he wouldn't let anybody else do any of the episodes. I mean, there are very few series, as long as this, which don't have multiple directors. And he said, no, I'm going to do the lot. And he did the lot. And, you know, I, you, you may have stories yourselves and you may have your own thoughts about Tom. But as far as I was concerned, he absolutely turned this into um, a fantastic series. And as you probably know, he was the one who said, right, the chosen men, they're not just going to be background characters. They are going to be 
part of the, the structure of the piece. That, you know, when, as you know, John um, wrote the scene where you're all introduced and what have you. And this was all Tom saying, no, I want these characters to be real characters. I want the chosen men to be real people and be part of the structure of, of Sharp. Because the original concept, as you probably remember, didn't actually, the chosen men were very much a sort of background characters. So he transformed it. And he also said, because as you know, um, Sharp was supposed to come from Essex, and he said to, to Sean, he said, can you do Essex? And I mean, Sean, as we got, I've done a film with him, he was South African, and he, Sean can do accents. But Tom just basically said, look, Sean, be yourself, be natural, just be Yorkshire, just be Sheffield. And that's, you, you know, he, so he was totally relaxed playing that role. And that, to see the two, because I had, in the cutting rooms, I had the scene, you know, the original version of the scene and the new version of the scene. And it, I, I mean, they, they don't exist anymore, but the, the difference was absolutely fantastic. So I have to say that, you know, so much, talk about a, a, an absolute fluke of an opportunity for something to be completely turned around when Paul did his foot in playing football. Because once again, I'm not, I've got, I had a lot of time for Paul, um, we chatted a lot, and when he had his injury, we talked a lot about how we were going to deal with it, with his injury and how we're going to cut around it and what have you. But I have to say that when Dara was up there and Paul was down here, and Paul was looking up at Dara saying, you know, it just didn't work. You had to have somebody of Sean's stature face-to-face -face like that. And, and then there was a strength in that character. Um, so there's so many things that, because of that one football accident, so many things that suddenly turn this round to be the series that it proved to be. Um, I'd love to ask Ivan if he had the same experience from being actually down on the set, whether it was he felt such a dynamic change as well. But I remember um, after about a, just fairly soon after the accident at the football. Robin and myself and Andrew Mollo, we, we sat down with uh, Malcolm to talk to him about the directing. And uh, Malcolm, of course, said, um, don't tell anybody else about this meeting we took off. Because um, I was also very worried. Uh, uh, the director was being very, very uncommunicated. Uh, well, he was being... He wasn't working with, with everybody else. He didn't care what anybody else thought. He was in a bad mood. He was pissing off the actors constantly. And, uh, and he was shooting it badly. So uh, the three of us called this meeting with Malcolm. Then the, the, the execs came out from London to look at all the rushes and stuff like that. Then we all went back to London again. They, they, they packed everything up and we all went off back to London. I got back to London. Um, and then two days later, um, I was in Cape Town doing a commercial. But before I left from the airport, I phoned Neville, um, our producer, and I said, listen, Neville, just in case you're looking for me, I'll be back on the weekend from Cape Town. I hadn't been back there since 1964, 65, wow. 64. And um, he said, well, you can't do that because we're going back on Monday. And... <laughs> Within a week, they had a new director, a new leading man, new leading lady. And I thought, Jesus, what am I going to do? I've got, 
and I'd never worked with Tom before, and um, I didn't know what to do. It was a serious angst problem for me to get back to, because I couldn't leave the Saturday for the, for, and I couldn't get to Yalta between Sunday and Monday. So I phoned Malcolm in desperation at the end. He said, oh, don't worry about it, just come when you can. So that was my part of the story. But I think, I think, I think the, 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 the meeting between Malcolm, Robin and Andrew and myself, I think finally settled, must have settled things. Mm. Because at that stage, everybody was getting really a bit worried about what we were doing. I mean, I remember a scene with a big explosion on the bridge, which was so badly covered. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know, if, I can't remember, did we do that again? Yeah. Yeah. We did. yeah, that was one yeah. of the stories. That was one of the offshoots that the Russian studio pulled out all the stops to build yeah. this bridge over that. Well, it was a lake actually, wasn't Creek, it? Creek, yeah, whatever. It was. And they used, you know, all their timber supplies and yeah. all their all their labour. Took them weeks to do it. They did a great job, and we blew it up, and it was great, spectacular. That was that. And for them, this was a really big deal. Yeah. And then three weeks later, we say, oh, can we do it again, please? <laughs> like, well, are you no, we can't do it again. We've done it. I said, yeah, but we want to redo it. No, 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 we've done it. We've done it. No, no, you don't understand. The new director, the new star, they need to shoot it again. They thought we were crazy. And they, then they thought there was an open checkbook. You know, they, well, if you want to do it again, then we'll cost this and it'll cost that. And so it was um, a very funny time. They, I mean, they had no idea of kind of how big, not that it was a big budget, but how big budgets could be, because they were so used to working to a time. Yeah. 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 Mike, you got your hand up. Yeah, I just want to thank Robin for that tribute to Tom. I actually feel really moved by that. And to hear it, to hear that story, that account told in that way by Robin, who was editing at the time, I find that really moving. And, and I'm, you know, Tom's no longer with us. And I think, thank you for saying that, Robin. No, it, 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 I mean, I, I, I was so full of admiration of that man. Um, I don't think it necessarily even has to be that you're just sitting here, you're not trashing the other guy, you're just saying that when he got there and when Sean got there, it all fell into place. And that's not mean about Paul McGann. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, no. It's just saying that Tom was just the right man for this. Yeah, it? I mean, in a nutshell, my feeling about Jim, who, who I was very grateful for casting me in it, all, all of the chosen men, and um, he gave me my first television, you know, about 20 years before that. Um, it was clear to me that he was not happy there in that country, in that heat, in the middle of the summer. You know, I'm, my feeling was, and it may be wrong, was it, that he was thinking, why the hell did I ever sign up to this, you know? I think, um, you're, I think you're right, Michael. I mean, I think he was, he was relieved, I think to not have to shoot three films, three feature length films out there, um, one after the other. So, yeah. Um. Can I say one thing about Tom? He was the only director I've ever worked with and never used a, a, a monitor. Yeah. He, used to, he knew exactly, I, I, I've never come across that ever, well before, in the early days, they never had monitors anyway. But no. when monitors came on, you could never pull it, you could never get a director away from a monitor. And Tom was the only director I've ever worked with who never used one. And and it's great, great, to, great to have that trust put in you, Ivan, isn't it? I mean, and he did trust you. I mean, that, that was the thing about it. Because he wouldn't see that material. For, yeah. I mean, how long was it before you eventually actually 
We saw that. Well, he and knew exactly what he was getting. He'd, be, he'd sit next to the camera, look at the, what everybody else was looking. And the minute that he had the shot, he'd say, okay, we're going to go here now. And he was really efficient. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, was another, there was just, uh, just to interject, there was another funny story from, well, a lighter story from that period where the change happened with Dennis Ivan. Do you remember? De yeah, you know, Dead. Yeah, yeah. Dead. Dobre Den. Something oh, happened just before, the, that, yeah. before it all kicked off. And I remember I was outside the set and you were all in, in, inside. And De Dennis came storming out the set and says, fuck this, I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. And Dennis was the sort of the, sort of the earth, the, the nicest guy you could, you could ever meet, you know, like, like you know, in an old-fashioned kind of way. And he goes, right, and, and he left. And we were going, no, you're not going to leave. And he goes, yeah, yeah no, I'm, I've had enough, I'm leaving. And anyway, so the other person that made, uh, when, when everything switched and they changed the director and they changed stories, is Dennis came back. That's <laughs> <laughs> right, we got Dennis back as well. Absolutely right. <laughs> and, and, Dennis, and Dennis was in seventh heaven because every night when you wrapped, you were straight in, in the bar, in the balalaika, and what was it called? Goten balalaika. <laughs> yes. Chatting up all the, sort of, the, the, the ladies there from the hotel. <laughs> Have we told the listeners who what Den did, what Dennis did? No, it was a grip. He was a grip. He pushed a dolly along. A dolly grip. Yeah. Paul would know him from Bye Bye Baby. Huh? <laughs> You'd know that Dennis died. I heard. Yeah. Oh no, no. Yeah. I think it's worth saying as well that when um, when we went back out there with Tom. Uh, you know, he was very respectful of Jim, and he knew Jim, and he he, he 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 said when he got the job, you know, the first thing he did was phone Jim and say, you know, oh, I'm taking over this shark gig, you know, and Jim sort of was cool about it and sort of wished him well. So there was no bad blood between those two men, I don't think at all. That's really good to hear that. Yeah, yeah I'm pleased. Uh, there, was, there, there, there was, I think, quite a lot of mutual, res well, a lot of mutual respect there. And uh, yeah, Tom was always at pains to say that because obviously I think, you know, particularly like probably Lyndon and, and Jason and myself, you know, we really, we got, we thought Jim was the dog's bollocks, really. We really liked him. Well, I mean, we, we couldn't see any problem with what he was doing, really because we weren't seeing what was coming out. So, you know. Um, well, we could see that he was shouting at Paul Bigley, and I knew he was shouting at Ivan and at uh, Andrew Moller. We kind of knew that. But he kind of jokey shouted at us too. But, you know, I, I treated it like, yes, sir, yes, sir. Sort of yeah, he was, it was, it was gruff, for sure. Yeah. But I didn't, yeah, I mean, you know. I've he worked did with, cast I've us. The job. I've worked with a lot yeah. worse. Yeah. I've worked he with gave us the job. He gave us the job. He formed that's the look of the chosen men. And I don't know how many billion times I've been told, my God, that's the perfect casting. You know, I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet, but the chosen men. I've And actually, uh, actually it's funny because Robin there is saying about um, Dara and Paul McGann mm. um, and, and the height difference. Jim Goddard put me on a, on a camber on a road, right? So I'm <laughs> six and a half feet. <laughs> And I was stood on the camber, and he put Paul McGann in the gully. He literally came up to about my belly button. <laughs> and um, people were saying, you know, oh, it's a bit, that's a bit odd, isn't it? And, you know, do you think, he, oh, I'm not sure about that. And Jim just goes, oh, no, I wanted a tall actor, I cast a tall actor. Mm -hmm. And that was, yeah, that was what it was like, wasn't it? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, let, me, let me just cover, first of all, um, I got something wrong on the Chosen Man podcast. I stated that McGann was the first choice, and Stuart Alejandro's brother has corrected me. Sean was the first choice. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sean yeah. was doing Lady Chatterley while we went well, out no, to film. Doing, he was doing Patriot Games. No, he um, wasn't, because Patriot no. Games came out in June 92. I, I checked with Alejandro, I checked, and with Stuart. Yeah, right. It, it came out in June 92, so it must have been Chatterley that he's doing. Right. And Chatterley finished just as Paul McGann had to, um, decided to pack it all in. So the, it was perfect timing. Sean had just finished shooting Chatterley and was then able to do Sharp. But in August, he was uh, employed. So I just have to correct that, which is in my book. Sorry, oh. Alex, you were saying? No, Chatterley's the one where my mum made me leave the room. Okay. I know I want to ask... Um, before we, actually, I do want to ask that something. But before we go on, does anybody else want to? Is obviously means a lot to you to to share your thoughts about Tom. He's no longer with us. Is there anyone who hasn't done that yet that would like to say yeah, something? Yeah, me because actually yeah, I haven't worked with Tom before, and I have to say um, I loved working with him. I mean, he was quick. He was efficient. We worked together on other shows as well, not just Sharp. And um, it was he was just. A lovely guy and we would also always quite frequently actually have quite um be at loggerheads and i'd be saying to him you can't do you can't do that tom you can't do that because of such and such you know oh it'll be fine nobody will notice you know we used to joke about it a lot and we'd have arguments about it and, and um but in the end you know he was efficient i don't think anybody i can't think of another director that could have got through those schedules as well as tom really uh, with as much footage that he managed to get. Which My favourite saying of Tom's was, we've lost the geography. Remember that one? Yeah. When we were changing, like, okay, we don't know the background anymore, we've lost the geography. I thought that's yeah. a very good little saying. Yeah. I, I, just, I just think the other thing with Tom was just how incredibly hard-working he was. Oh, so mm. hard-working. So mm. hard. And even down to the kind of running around with buckets of full of earth, like a lunatic. <laughs> yeah. uh, dusting down, you know, people yeah. in the back. Throwing blood over people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then dashing behind <laughs> the camera. Going, horror. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You never saw him sitting down, never basically. Never. Yeah, and from a logistics point of view, of having done stuff with him throughout the whole, you know, up until India and stuff, uh, he was really easy to work with. Because you say, well, what, are we going to see that over there? He goes, we'll never see that. 
we're never going to shoot that direction. So that's where you put the camp. That's where you put the logistics and oh. stuff. Like that. Yeah. And location yeah. would be the same. You would show him a location and you go, is this any good? And he goes, doesn't work or it works. None of this yeah. ambiguity. And the other thing I loved is I, I, um, I was saying was that um, Tom never used a monitor. And I was sort of taught the old fashioned way that you always buy a camera. You look through camera and you learn the lenses. And, you know, that was a great thing with Tom, you know, because he was right in there, in the action, in it, with everything. And you weren't sitting, you know, God knows how far away, watching a monitor, trying to see quite what's happening. Mm. And that, that I loved. Well, the, the energy was absolutely apparent. I mean, that was the huge thing. When I said it was chalk and cheese with the two lots of rushes, the energy that suddenly came into the material that came into the cutting room was amazing. I mean, there were, you know, what you started to do, Ivan, the, the camera was moving, there was action, there was depth of action, there was all sort, you know, the, the, the quality was, was superb. And, and that was, you, you knew that he was in there, right in the thick of it producing this and that and we were just overjoyed with this, this once we started to see to, you know that this new material coming in. did it was there any of the mccann doing the footage footage, did any of that make it into the actual series I, I can pretty well say no there was very little of that material almost none yeah i i'm i I mean, obviously, it's a long time ago, Paul. Yeah, yeah. No, I, okay. I mean, I've got all of you then. Did they film that scrap in the barn with little Paul McGann and Big Dara? Yes. Yes. Was it amusing? And at that point, Paul had knackered his knee and we had a stand-in for Dara and a stand-in for Paul McGann uh, doing the actual physical fighting part. Oh, that makes me sad. I was really hoping that it was a proper match-up between little Paul McGann and Big Dara and they were going at it in the barn. But it <laughs> wasn't. Would, fortunately not. Well, there was a certain amount, wasn't there? I mean, there was, obviously, um, some of that footage did have Paul in it and some of it did have Dara. But, I mean, it was a strange mix, wasn't it? Of, yeah, just the stuff where they actually threw across tables and stuff. Yeah. Paul had to step yeah. back, yeah. I actually, yeah. Um, this is all in my book and this is no secrets, you know, Paul McGann sued Sharp Film, as Alejandro yeah, Bruno. Uh, yes, yes, I, yes, it's called From Crimea With Love. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, it's, uh, no, don't laugh, it's true. Um, and I went along to Paul McGann's lawyer, the equity lawyer's uh, office in Chancery Lane, and he showed me existing whatever was left over rushes of Paul McGann and Sharp. I don't really remember them. One of them was when we climbed up, we climbed up a hill where he knackered his leg again. But the third, the third time he did his knee in, we were climbing up a hill and a thorny gorse bush hill, and he yeah. twisted it again. I think I saw footage of that. It wasn't cut together, obviously. No. But no. they had managed to get a hold of some some footage. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that, I don't know how you that got one that. when he climbed up the hill was when Dr. Gaynor came out. Yes, exactly. He came out um, there to, like a day later. Yeah, we had to we had to like push Paul McGann up the hill, and then when we got to the top of the hill, we discovered we could have driven to the top of base camp, <laughs> and he knackered his knee climbing to location. Basically, it just the, to, the, to the Paul's final time. credit. It to Paul's credit, it just it wasn't. The right time for him and it all went wrong and it's no yeah. reflection on him as an actor no no no, ended up no absolutely personal oh, yeah. there. but i have to ask zach because zach grew up watching this and has ended up a napoleonic historian because he grew up watching this you basically ruined his life he's never going to get a decent uh. wage uh, but anyway zach with one of the things that epitomizes tom's um 
impact when he came in, I think, is that scene where suddenly there was background information that John wrote it, didn't he, about the chosen men. What do you think it would have been like as, as a kid watching that and that if they didn't have that depth to the chosen men? Because that's one of the things that made you want to be in the Napoleonic army, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the things that works so well about the whole the whole kind of feel of Sharp that you get coming through the screen, that that you have that camaraderie and the, the individual depth of the characters. And for me, looking back on both the books and particularly the series now as somebody who's kind of spent all of these years trying to work out what life was like in the army, to see just how kind of gritty these individuals are and how well that reflects such a kind of a rich array of individual characters who served is, is just fantastic. I think that's the new Perkins. <laughs> the new Perkins. <laughs> On a recast, Zach, you'd be Perkins, apparently. I just want to go back to something that Robin said, and I just yep. want to say that it wasn't my fault. The upside-down flag. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody else, when you were talking about them going to uh, Yalta and their, uh, their thoughts about it, when I first started on this, I was actually the standby prop when we were filming in England. There was a prop master, Peter Grant, and when we did that two-day shoot in England, I can't remember exactly where it was. Oh, God, was oh, yeah, 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 yes, yes, yeah. yes. So Damn they weren't going to take a prop to Russia. Um, so when they went out there, the first two weeks, they worked with the Moscow film crew. Um, that was when the upside-down flag happened, mm-hmm. which I think started the problems. And then it got to the point where Jim asked for a snuff box, and they brought everything but the snuff box. Um, and then Jim and Mark Jenny, who was the first AD at the time, blew up and they said, right, now we've got to bring a prop guy out. Um, so I came out basically getting a phone call on Saturday, Sunday afternoon to mm-hmm. go into the production office in London on Monday. Um, I went in on Monday. They said, are you willing to go? I went, yeah, sure, I'm going. That's fine. Yeah, where is it? What do they do now? They took my passport off me, got the visa that afternoon, and I was on a flight the next day. So I had no idea what I was going into. So they'd already been filming for two weeks by the time I got there. Um, and I just came into this bunch of people that were going, you're crazy, this is unbelievable, you can't believe it. And then two weeks or three weeks after that, we all wrapped out and came back again. So. Yeah. I didn't realise that call you joined late. I didn't realise. Yeah, they weren't going to take a prop. Oh, God, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And also on that first shoot, uh, when we got there in the morning and they were introducing everybody, um, just prior to that, I'd met Brian Cox at the top of the stairway going down to this location. And he said to me, where's the location? And I said, go downstairs, turn right, follow the arrows. And if you're going, could you take these two chairs? Because I thought he was a rigger. Oh, <laughs> so we get down there, oh, up, and then Jim got on, introduces this is Paul McGowan, this is uh, this is Brian Cox. So I went, oh. Oh, <laughs> so he gave me a bit of a rough time for the first couple of months that we were out there. Um, and right. We got to a scene where uh, it was uh, a dinner scene up on this hill, I can't remember the, the location, but I was giving the chosen men and him some food and some drinks but I didn't have anything that was clean because we were literally working off the back of a, an army truck. Uh, we didn't have all of the facilities that you would normally expect. So I've given the chosen men a lump of cheese, a piece of bread, wooden bowl, and a wooden mug. And I haven't put anything in it. I haven't given them any grape juice. And they've all gone, you know, oh, well, what do we do? I said, oh, look, don't worry about it. I can't get them clean. 
But Brian was a little bit sort of like, I want something in the, the joke. And I went, Girl, I can't give you something because we're in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if they're clean. I've literally just been given these things. Um, can you do without? So he just went on and on and on about it to the point that we're just about to film. And he says, uh, props. Oh, yeah. Can I have something? In? Let's go. I've told you about this. I'm happy to put something in there, but if you get sick, it's your thing. So he goes, well, what am I supposed to do? And I was just getting a little bit fed up. So I said, well, you can act, can't you? Oh. <laughs> that, he was fine. <laughs> so, so that's my little moment with Brian Cox. He was fine after that. Uh, we, so we were talking to the Nightfall cast about their Faye Dunaway moments. If that's yours, does anybody else remember their Faye Dunaway moments on set? Or in the editing suite. The oh, bit where well, you have the complete diva meltdown and just like that, like, that's it, I'm not playing anymore, I've had enough, and you throw a tantrum. It was the whole three series. Yeah, for Lyndon, yeah. Don't you know who I am? I'm a favourite child star. You know, we, we, we had the Dimaji bacon riot. Yeah, come on, tell me about this, because you've hinted at what is the Dimaji bacon There wasn't bacon any bacon. Riot? There wasn't right. bacon, is that all yeah, it is? Yeah, so we kicked off. Yes, this is on the first year. Ivan would know about it. Robin, you must have heard about it. Colin knows about it. Phil, you must have heard about it. But when um, you finish, I want to mention yes. the cruise version of that. Yes, I want you to, yes. <laughs> yes, I want I want you to I want definitely to hear about that because it's in my book as well. So we um we'd had these meetings with the association who were our service providers, the Russian Copa, Russian helpers, and they had said, Look, the the food's gonna get much better. Uh, we promise you, promise you. And, and instead of having moosely and, and uh, cups of tea on, on set up the mountain in, in, in the winter, they're going to give us a hot breakfast. And uh, we thought, great, this is cool. So on the first day we arrived at Dimaji, which is this location up a mountain, um, when it was in December, and we got there and there was not one scrap of breakfast. Because of something, I don't know what happened, a, a, a frozen gas line or something, or, or it was all eaten before we got there. So we said, wait a second, we've, we we fought hard to have this. We're not going anywhere without our breakfast. So we said, right, we're not going. Um, Dr uh, um, Muir, who had just come in from, from, from England, uh, came in to negotiate with us in this room, in, this, uh, in the Dimaji nursery, which was our, our green room. And um, I'm on one side and Dara and John everyone, and, and, and Muir's on the other side across his camp bed. And all of a sudden Muir says, listen, listen, we cannot possibly get bacon down here. It's, it's impossible. And then all of a sudden, across the room, a packet of bacon flew in and landed straight between, <laughs> on the camp bed between Muir and me and Tara. We just all broke out laughing. Someone had been at the dollar shop in Moscow just before arriving and had the bacon still in their, in their, in their uh, bags. So the, <laughs> a big rush, it landed so perfectly in the middle. I was just dying. I was, oh, I was fantastic. So it became oh. the Jimmy Bacon Riot. <laughs> And my father, I, think there was, I think there was several packets, Jason, actually. I think there was two or three packets when slap, slap, slap. Oh, so that's your better. collective Faye Dunaway moment as casting. <laughs> what about the crew? So let's hear what Colin, this no, all Colin, happened, Colin, yeah, Colin tell this us. This all happened at, like, uh, on a location. Now, the difference between the base camp and the location was like another little bus ride. So it was quite a way away. Um, so they were all in base camp and we were all in this location, which was up in the hills. It was freezing cold and it was actually so cold that that particular set every day when we got there in the morning, we would unload barrels of gunpowder onto the floor, light the gunpowder to melt the 
the mud yeah. so that we could get the horses on because every night because you'd have the horses on that set all day it would cause ridges in the mud and it would freeze and these were so bad that we had to melt these before we could even get the horses on so that was every morning so we're there at now 8 30 9 o'clock no sign of castor crew we've been there almost three hours we're freezing we're miserable we don't know what's going on because the radios don't work and eventually they turn up and they've had a bacon riot for a bit of bacon <laughs> and we're actually freezing cold going like okay i mean two days later you get great because you get bacon in the morning but at the time it was like it sort of caused a rift between the, the cast and crew for the rest of the day. <laughs> we were doing it for you, Colin. Thank you we very much. I appreciate you, that. And there's another story behind that, because uh, the caterers at the time were buying all the meat up in the, the market, that same market that you were talking about earlier. Um, the meat wasn't um, like meat our standards in any way. So they were going there, they were buying everything in the first thing in the morning, like four or five o'clock in the morning, and then bringing it to the set and then cooking it and getting it ready. That happened for a couple of weeks. And then the locals, because there was no meat for anybody in the town, actually blockaded the market to stop them from going in to buy the meat, which meant that they had to start bringing meat in from, I think Germany was the first place it started to come in from. But, uh, but they're the sort of stories that, that you never see on the screen because it's yeah. obviously not part of it. I will. I will, maybe, I will say a book coming out. Yes, yes. <laughs> I will. I will say, Alex, that um, and, and I hope Natasha. Can hear me. I hope Natasha hears me. Um, um, from that point on, everybody had a hot breakfast on Sharp from Sharp One to Sharp Five. Thank you very much, <laughs> Phil. Yeah. With the budget, you said it was an all right budget. And um, was it, what was the thing you had to do on the cheap? that you were like hoping no one would notice and oh. what's your proudest creation on shop? Well, that's a big question. I mean, the proudest, the proudest thing was just achieving those sets um, with limited, I mean, I hate to say it, but limited skill and, and limited resources. The local crew could do very well what they were used to doing, but anything that was slightly different like Spanish architecture, for example, completely through them. And I spent hours in the workshops trying, we did a lot of drawings and just trying to explain to them how the sort of, you know, the geometry works, how things are constructed, how to make things that would easily be put up and then come down and be moved. But um, it was just the logistics of getting things done on the time. And I think on a Russian, you know, on a communist regime back in the movie, they would spend years. And if, it, if they had to break for six months and start up again six months later, so be it. They weren't tied down to uh, our schedules. So they had no idea of timing. And so I seem to remember we were lucky because the first, in the first season when we were building pretty big sets, um, we got hit by bad weather, schedule changes because of Jim leaving and Tom coming on. Um, so things got delayed. So we, we were lucky. Things got pushed back a couple of months. Um, and so we had the time. But they, they had no tools. And for example, I remember, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Spain, Portuguese architecture, lots of plaster work. The day came when the plastering, the local plastering team turned up. And uh, 
it was a team of five women. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but they were like totally, they were just people's wives or pe laborers. They weren't yeah. skilled. They had a couple of buckets and that was it. They had no, nothing to spread plaster with, no tools or anything. And it was just like, ah, where, where do we go from here? Because we've got like these huge structures to cover. So it was just, I mean, what was fun was, was building a sort of, I couldn't speak Russian, I couldn't speak English, was building that kind of dialogue, that what, however we did it with drawings, with pointing, with broken English, broken Russian. And actually, I, you asked that, I think one of the proudest things was actually just being able to communicate with these guys, you know, in a purely visual, you know, in a purely visual way. So... Uh, Everything, everything went against us all the time. We ran out, I mean, they ran out of timber and I, I seem to remember they had to go like two or 300 miles away and buy, you know, lorry loads of timber and bring it in. There was nothing local. I remember there was a time when, you know, we didn't have a huge colour palette to paint all the sets with, but they ran out, literally ran out of black paint. No black paint anywhere. Oh, I remember that. What are we going to do? So the local buyer said, I can't get black paint, but what I can do, so I've got 500 bottles of black ink. And the bottles were like that big, each one. <laughs> but we found out that, you know, actually, if you got the ink, you diluted it a certain amount, it was wonderful for painting timber. Fantastic, instant aged timber. So it was just things like that all the time, every day, you know, was another challenge. What um, about the worst no. thing? Well, it was right towards the end of the first season when we, um, there, was a, there was a kind of tornado or a tempest that ripped through the set. I don't know if anyone else remembers that. And there was a lot of damage. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then we, so we had to instantly repair that. And, and the set was looking great. And then one weekend, bang, this tornado came through and we had to do very quick repairs. And then a week or two later, the, the winter, the winter weather set in. And that's when all the snow and it started freezing. And as Colin described, we had to melt all the snow every morning. But I remember the day the first big deep snows came down and we weren't sure we could get to the set to finish it. And me being an enthusiastic young art director, no, we're going there, we're going there. And all, all the local crew were going, oh no, the snow's too deep, it's too cold. I'm saying, look, they're shooting tomorrow, we've got to finish. I mean, we had all the little details to put on, like door furniture and signs to go up and whatever. And um, I, I, I encouraged this whole squad of uh, carpenters to get in the Jeep, let's go. It took hours and we get there and it's like late morning, we've got about three, a window of three or four hours to work before it gets dark. I get there and I was like, right, let's get going. And the snow was really deep, it was like two, three feet deep, but let's go for it. And uh, they just said, we can't. Why not? We haven't got any tools. What do you mean you haven't got any tools? Oh, they're in the other truck and the other truck never left the studio. So it was like, <laughs> well, you know, this is the day before the shoot. So I gave up at that point. I gave up. And, uh, your fade I remember wandering down the hillside to what was the base camp, a great big marquee, which was set up by the local soldiers, the battalion and sat in there all day till the trucks came back in the evening and picked us up. <laughs> just stop. It's just like, you know, every day there was something else. Mm. Well, I think Alex, you wanted to add something. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, wherever we, we were doing on Sharp was that we're pioneers. Um, 
that, that we were really teaching every, every country we went to, we were doing something, it seemed like the first time. And uh, testament to, to Phil and the art department, uh, that those guys that worked on Sharp 1, 2, and 3, we brought them to Turkey in Sharp 4 and 5. And these guys had picked up so much skills from, from what you had taught them and, and, and stuff that they came to Turkey and, um, you know, basically made those, those great sets of Waterloo and um, down in the castle, um, down in, the, in Antalya and stuff. So it was um, in- incredible how that worked so well. Yeah, I've forgotten that. That's right, because I only did the first two. I forgot in the third year. That's right. Uh, I've got, so you already mentioned, guys, briefly, the horses and having to melt the set. Um, but I guess this one's for Colin. And well, I, I guess it could be for anybody, really. I don't think it's Me? just a prop thing. Could <laughs> it, no, it does, because it mentions the actors as well, the animals on set. What kind of challenges was that as actors and yeah, all of the actors were animals like, on set. So. <laughs> <laughs> all of the actors were animals on set. No, offset. I can't remember. I remember the day when two horses ran into each other and one of them really seriously broke its entire shoulder out of it and uh, you could hear it. We were about a hundred miles away, you could just hear this but these bones break. It was horrible. Well, I think it's fair to say the um, Russian stuntmen didn't quite work to the safety standards that we were used to, and that went for the horses. However, however, they were brilliant. Oh, fearless. They were fantastic. I mean, there was a couple of times when I was involved with the stuntman where they said, no, hit me. I want you to actually kick me. Don't, don't pretend to properly. They were brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, a lot of times working with the stunt guys, we were, we'd be with Tom and you'd, you'd get to the set before the actors would get there and you'd be lining up a, a sequence or um, you'd have people falling off of bridges or, or uh, walls and things like that. And they're the only stuntmen that I've ever worked with anywhere in the world who would say to Tom through the translator and their, their boss, uh, okay, we'll, we'll do it this way. And they'll fall off the wall just to show you how to do it. Like, this is a... A 12 foot, 15 foot wall. Just, and Tom's going, no, you don't have to do it now. You don't have to do it now. We'll do it on film. No, 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 no problem. We're gone now. You just go, I got this way. <laughs> you shut up. Oh, guys, just save it for the shot, please. <laughs> the, the horses got, uh, used to react to the word action, as they always do after a long time. And the horses, I remember the scene we did, it was Sean snogging somebody in a stable. Can't remember what the scene was, but there, there was some sort of... Uh, that was going on, and and every time somebody said action, the horse started kicking in in its stall. Does do, do people mm. remember that? I remember that. I remember the scene mm. with the sumter, isn't it? Yeah, uh-huh. so the first yeah. one, right? Yeah, in the yeah. barn. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And the horses. Every time he said action, the horse would start kicking the walls and trying to get out. <laughs> Interesting. I uh, in uh, on the fourth sharp in uh, in Antalya. A horse stamped on my foot. Ouch. Which one? Um, you weren't there, Ivan. It was in Turkey. It was a uh, horse. Foot. Which foot? My left foot, and it uh, probably it probably broke my toe. I don't know if you remember, Cole. I think you had to spray some stuff on my toe. It was like it was blue and yellow and orange. Oh, I can't remember. You you were all so much into like I've got a cut. I've got this. I've I got know. that. I've forgotten so <laughs> many things. I know. I've got. Oh, uh, and you always had a cigarette lighter in your belt. Uh, yeah, and, and, a, and a medical kit for most of you yeah, guys. Because, because you were the first aid as well, weren't you? Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, just before I came out on the first season, I'd done a, a North Sea Diver paramedic course. Yeah. So okay, and it and it just happened so that everything that happened in those first two seasons unfortunately needed it. So. Um, I've got a question from Sterling for Colin. Uh, he says, "What was the most difficult thing that you had to get onto set?" I don't think he means physically. I think he means to create. Right. Um, right. I've got a shout out to Phil and Andrew and uh, Alison Stewart Richardson, who was the set decorator. That. I didn't really want for anything. They did all of that prep beforehand in England. So 99% of what I needed was there. There was one particular scene that they was uh, they were giving, I think Wellington, a boxed um, telescope as a gift. Um, and they had the, they'd sent something out which uh, Tom didn't like. So I had about an hour to make up another box display thing with felt in it so I was ripping things out of other props so that was the hardest thing um, but actually for me with my day-to-day -day work and handing the props over I was amazingly looked after by everybody uh, it was a really good job by all of them we get onto the set in the morning and you, you work on other shows you get on the set in the morning and the first half an hour or an hour is sort of deciding where you're going to be shooting you're moving things around you're maybe fixing something that's not quite ready but here, every day, you'd get out of the bus. Tom's already walking onto the set, walking through it. He's already got in his head everything up to lunchtime, easily sorted out. Um, and you're just following him around going, okay, we're going to shoot here. Okay, I'll get that ready and I'll move this out of the way. And this one's going to take an hour for me to reset this. So do you want to shoot over here while I do that? And so it was really good. So there wasn't actually anything that, that was that difficult for me. In the first one, where we spoke with Sean, he kept referencing, oh, yeah, I've got one of them. I've got one of them. I've got one of them. So someone asked, how did you manage to stop Sean from pinching everything out of the prop department? <laughs> I think that probably ends up coming off the last seasons. Um, and he basically just said, I want that. At the, 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 the end of the day, you go, yeah, if we're not going to need it again. It's He's yours. got a whole wardrobe <laughs> down in his basement, I think. But he did ask for the sword, didn't he, Jason? He asked permission yeah. for the sword. Yeah, he yeah. probably paid for it, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I've got as well uh, uh, to Ivan about um, creating atmosphere that atmosphere in the first one especially which is my favourite I think Sean and Jason you said it was your favourite as well um, it's really gritty and it feels quite dark and really atmospheric and that's down that's got to be down to you right how did you is that a conscious decision so how do you make that happen as a director of photography I can't remember anything about it, to tell you the truth. She's <laughs> used in my line. Yeah. <laughs> That's my line, Ivan. No, Ivan, for, in, for instance, Ivan, the, the scenes with Wellington in his, in his room, in, in his office, and they were just like, look like an oil painting, the way you lit it, and yeah. it was amazing. The lighting, and also as well, do you know what one I always remember? The lighting on, you know, the one with the meal where you guys uh, savaged what well, the contents of the dinner table. It shows in men love. <sighs> yeah, just that really dim light. It, it just felt really authentic and candle lit and not like anything. It felt like you say, like an oil painting. Did we do that in London? Uh, in no, England? that was in Portugal. Yeah, in Portugal. Yeah, in Portugal. Yes, Two things happened with that. We set a light to the set because somebody wanted a bigger fire in the fireplace. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and it was burning behind the fireplace, so we had to rip the wall off and put all of that out. Um, and also, we've flown, we chartered a flight from Russia to Portugal, the crew, 
and Andrew and everybody else had already gone out and they were prepping that day. And I think it was the, the second, the next day we were there, it was a Sunday or something. I think we flew in on a Saturday and we were filming the Sunday. But it was, the scene was the chosen men, their first sit down meal in, in their story of about eight months. Chicken. So it was ripping chickens apart. I just didn't do curry. Yeah, exactly. So I get there in the morning and I said to Andrew, okay, hi. Uh, so how many chickens have you got? And he goes like, well, there's five. And I go, that's one take. So we had all the drivers in Portugal going out Sunday morning buying roast chickens. And they were coming in. And as they were coming in, they were coming in like on the set, straight onto the set, and we were turning over with those. Because they were literally just ripping these chickens apart and eating them. They were hot and tasty as we were oh, eating okay. them. We'd been starved for four months in Ukraine. So this was like, yeah. it was unbelievably uh, incredible. But also the art department was responsible for creating some great sort of backgrounds and scenes and, and you and you just have to remember things were very dark in those days mm. uh, and you, you have to stay with that sort of uh, you, you 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 have to make it look authentic and uh, yeah, but ivan there's a difference between the scenes in sharp two sharp three sharp four sharp five compared to those early scenes your scenes have for <laughs> me more authenticity um to the well, I mean, was it the smoke? We had lots of smoke. Yeah, we like pumping smoke. Of, we did have a lot of smoke. Yeah. Yeah, we lit a lot with um, candles as well. So yeah. you didn't put artificial lights in, which I think we did later on. We started to put small bounce lights in. Uh, and a lot of what you did was just pure candlelight. Yeah. I mean, it looks great all the way through, but there's just something about that first one, the first bit, that it just really is mood, captures yeah. the mood. It, 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 you, you, you know, it was, it was before the days of digital photography, and, and th it was very hard to work on film, on, on 16 mil, and, and, and try and create that sort of stuff. It wasn't hard, but it was, uh, it was harder than it is now. Yeah. Um, Alex, we shot the sharper shot on super 16 millimeter film, which was unusual, oh. right, Alejandro? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, it was, and then the, the ones in India are on 35. Were they? Yeah, yeah. Wow. We, didn't, we never shot on digital any of the shows. So it was all super 16 and 35. It hadn't really, digital hadn't come in by the time the series had finished shooting, had it? Just, just uh, it just started coming in the, in the first India shot. But yeah. uh, the first yeah, one we that would make it. sense because Hornblower crosses yeah. over slightly, doesn't it? And they were talking about how they were just on it, but still with no CGI. Yeah, yeah. But, but the early days of digital was really crap anyway. So yes, and, and we didn't want to risk it in India because we, we weren't filming in in uh, Mumbai or or any of the Delhi. We were filming outside, so we just yeah. stuck to thirty five. Yeah. And yeah. um, there's a few quick fire questions. Uh, what made you laugh the hardest? Me. That's my answer. Linda, is it when Daniel Craig <laughs> launched your uh, alarm clock out the window? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did yeah. he give you the five ninety nine after the last podcast? No, he still hasn't. <laughs> Get on to his agent. Yeah, <laughs> uh, don't worry, it's in my book as well, Jason. <laughs> oh, great! You know what? One of my funniest moments was after Lyndon had been uh, killed up at Dimaji. Uh, he released all of his energy by smashing one of our plastic chairs with a with a mallet. And it was so cold up on Dimaji that it was just it was disintegrating little shards. But we were laughing our faces off 
smashing this chair to me. Uh, I'm laughing now. Anyway, it's in my I video. Didn't, I didn't get rid of all my energy, but it was a, a, no, the, about 10%. The pent-up anger. The 10%, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you what made me laugh a lot. Where's there. my bacon? Go on, Ivan. The funniest thing I thought was when, when a lot of the crew uh, got Giardia in the first year, and all the babushkas who were running each floor started going, going down from room to room, giving everybody an enema. It was the funniest fucking thing I ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wasn't it Sharp's enema? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, what about you? I, 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 I can't really think of any specific thing. Is there actually. much hilarity in the editing suite? There's not necessarily hilarity. Um, let, I mean, lots of things I can think aren't necessarily hilarious. You were talking earlier about coming along to the cutting room, various chosen men would pop in and, in and out. But were you aware of the fact that when Darrow came along and he saw himself, this, this taught me a lesson as well, he saw himself in the rushes and he decided that he'd got the wrong Irish accent. And so he, he decided that he was going to adjust his, whether it was going from the north to the south or whatever, but then he started to speak in a different accent. And, he's, and this is when, at the time, when Tom said, for God's sake, don't show them any rushes because it's, it's dangerous. I mean, you actors, that's the trouble. It's, it's, you can look at yourself and suddenly think, crikey, I'm not doing that right, and adjust your performance. Of course, you're already, you're already on film. You're already sort of, that character is already created. Um, I think I think we got away with it, and I think Dara only did it for a couple of days, but um, it was a little bit worrying at the time. Um, but talking, I mean, I'm just um, various things. I'd love when you were talking about food before, and I'd just love to talk to Phil about this because yeah. this is series two. Series two, we're in Symphoropol or Symphoropol, we used to call it, but you, you rightly called it Symphoropol. It's awful, did you call it literally? And we weren't able to get the rushes back. I mean, we, we, we were, you know, the cutting room was set up in up there, and it was the beginning of the shoot. This is um, series two, and we couldn't get the rushes processed and back and everything. So they said to us, look, you may as well go ahead to Yalta. You go and head. Um, design and art department are already down there. Um, you go ahead, set up the cutting room, wait for us to finish shooting up here because there's no point you being up here. We can't get the film back in time because it had to go and be processed and come back and um, there were holdups all along the way. So we went down to Yalta not knowing what to expect. And of course, Phil and, and art department and Cliff and, and Andrew, they were all there with the rest of the KGB, because the thing was that at that stage, they hadn't vacated the, the KGB, because it was the KGB um, sanatorium, they hadn't vacated. So they were all there on holiday with their families, and there were wives and children, and this, but they were, well, they were KGB. But we had no, when you talk about bacon sandwiches, we would have died for a bacon sandwich, because we didn't, there wasn't any food, was there, Phil? I thought the first year was difficult. So I thought, oh yeah, I'll go back for a second year. It can't yeah. be any worse. And it was three. What had happened was the place we stayed in the first year, that sanatorium, apparently the manager had got shot two weeks yeah. before we were due to come out. Shot dead as well, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
So yeah. the Russian producer had to find a new sanat- new place for us all to stay. He found this KGB sanatorium a bit further up the road. The, the first year, the place was beautiful in its own gardens. The second place was just a concrete tower block. It did have lovely gardens, but it was pretty monolithic. And um, the facilities were dreadful. And you're quite right, Robin. The food was just, well, you, you know, well, well, I don't know what it was. But when well, I arrived, probably a couple of weeks before, before then, the lifts weren't working. There was no hot water. It was dirty. Where, the, where they put us. And I remember getting on the phone to whoever the production manager was, I can't remember, and saying, what have you done? Where, what, what are you, why, if you put us in this place, I'm coming home. Me and my guys Simon, are coming home. Wasn't it Simon? Clive, Clive Hedges. Come home. Clive Hedges, um, yeah. It will give out, you know, bad messages to the rest of the crew. So we stuck it out for a couple of weeks. And Pavel, the Russian producer, used to bring in the occasional goodies for us. You know. But do you remember, Phil, to the right-hand side, it wasn't even complete, the Chernomori. No. It was there was construction. They were still, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It, was young, it was young conscripts who were actually doing the building work. Yeah. They were the ones that were actually... And there wasn't a right angle in the place. Every <laughs> angle was slightly, slightly out. But the thing Are they the Russian conscripts that Lyndon was uh, getting all the uniform out of? Swapping I, I very much think they probably, probably were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they actually asked you to stop taking all their stuff. I was just yes. going to say to say to Phil, my vivid memory as we got down and joined you all down in Yalta in this wonderful hotel, which... They had started to clean up, but anyway, but with no food. So do you remember I, that we had to sort of create a sort of gourmet club? Yeah, yeah, and I know what you what, say. What, I, I managed to get to, uh, one of those two-ring burners down on the famous yeah. market. Yeah. Um, so we had something to cook on. We had to send word back because, you know, everybody else was in Simferopol with the caterers. We didn't have any catering at all. So they sent down a bag, a black bag full of meat. You know, this wonderful meat that they... This, this <laughs> and we, we had this bag of... So we had real meat because the KGB and their families lived off rissoles. I mean, they, they would tuck in every night to the cabbage, potatoes and rissoles. I mean, that was basically their sort of staple there. And we were supposed to have that same meal. Yeah. So we, we, well, we, I mean, after two nights, we just couldn't cope with it. Anyway, we got the bag of meat, we dispersed the meat between the various refrigerators and the rooms. And then each day, one, it, it could have been my turn, we'd go out into the town and try and find something to go with the thing. So this gourmet society, or gourmet meal society was, <laughs> was created where you go into town, you'd, you'd look and there'd be, you'd go in the market and this woman would be sitting there, she'd have four potatoes on the, um, you know, literally four potatoes. So you'd buy those four potatoes. Um, you'd go and we'd just build up a meal and then you'd go back and build, and we would cook the meal yeah. for the rest of the lads there. Now, I don't know how many times we had to cook, cook these meals. Right. I, I remember coming across a whole load of mushrooms, a big... That was Jason's room. That mushroom picking. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that night? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, well, that was interesting. But it, it was, uh, I mean, it, it was mind-blowing because we literally had no proper food at all. I hope you haggled for the potatoes. You didn't pay the full price, did you? Well, I probably paid the full price. I mean, <laughs> look, I'm English. I don't... You got that excited <laughs> about the title of the potato. 
Yeah, Lyndon. Bobbin, the thing was, you bought the four potatoes, but the person behind you in the queue only wanted one. <laughs> You've taken them all. I know. Look, don't make me feel guilty after uh, all these years. Robin, <laughs> Natasha wants you to know that it's Golubtsi, that's the wrapped cabbage thing, and Katletki, that's what they served every day at the, ch- at the oh. Mosquia Sanatorium. Yeah, yeah. Well, by the time you lot came down, the, the KGB had been given the boot. They'd all been told that they could only, you know, they'd have up until a certain time when the Western crew was going to move in. Yeah, actually, the second year, the, the caterers were great, weren't they? The second yeah, year, set, set meals, yeah, uh, no bacon, no. They had some extraordinary characters working for them. Yeah, there, there's about eight of them or nine of them came down, and they offered us breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. And they, we bought all the food from the UK, and but we ran out like uh, uh, we ran out like in week three or something or week four, very very quickly, <laughs> and we didn't have enough to finish the the whole show. One funny thing I remember was, I, I can't remember how soon into the shoot it was, but it was when the, the local extras were told they would get fed. And, and like, maybe there were 50 of them. And they spread the word to all their families and friends. More than 50 people turning up, about 500 people turned up. I remember that. That was hilarious. And the food just went bam because the cage yeah. was didn't know who was who. But it yeah, was no it joke. Was it was no food. joke for them about food though because they did not have the food. If you went no. into Yalta and went into the shot, there was no bread. There was nothing. There's no meat. Mm. Absolutely zilch of you know. So so they really were quite desperate for food. And not yeah. only that, they were, you know, not only that. They, as we said before, they didn't have water. Most of the time, the water was cut off in the town and they'd have it for an hour in the morning an hour in the afternoon or something power cuts all the time so that although we moaned we were you know in a way lucky yeah i think that's why we were designated to those hotels because there, there was water going into them they actually put did repipe uh, our hotel in, wow. in year two and we were the one of the few people that had water at that time in right. in the city as far as i remember I mean, jokes aside, it sounds like at that point in time, the economy that you took with you to Yalta was sorely needed and gave work. I mean, you're saying like five women turn up for a day's work. It needs a hell of a lot to be a plasterer for a day to some people in that situation, doesn't it? Just before we finish, um, everyone wants to know if you lot would go back to do more. They want Sharp's Devil is the one that keeps coming up. Am I in it? No, you're dead. Oh, your, yeah. your ashes have come out with the ship. I mean, maybe, we, no. All right, Lyndon, flashbacks. Okay, maybe, maybe I'll pop in. <laughs> we, we would love to do another shop, definitely. I think that the story's not finished um, there, but it's a question of whether the the commissioners or whether there's an appetite for it on on TV right now. And and you know, well, Reese Phillips has offered to crowdfund it. <laughs> I don't think he knows how much it would cost. He said, well, surely Netflix would want it. I think Stuart said, is, is it cost 7 million quid to do challenge, was it? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know the figures off the top of my head, but... Uh, the, 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 yeah, I mean, the problem with, with our show is that we have so much period and everything costs money. I mean, you've got horses, and you've got the costumes, the guns, and it, it's, yeah. it's such an expensive show to put together. Well, um, I, could, I know Zach and all his mates would come down and be extras for nothing. Uh, but it was one of them was pointing out, Marcus, who's a manager at Apsy House, was saying that apparently Bernard Cormer's writing uh, another one that's set in like kind of, it, it would tie in with the age that Sean is now as well. Um, oh, Perkins. Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Perkins is alive. And Harris and Hagman. Perkins' twin brother can show up. Yeah. I, mean, I think the difference between what's being made now, definitely what I'm working on now and what, what I worked on in, uh, in the past was that everything now is CGI and nothing, everything that we did back then, we did it real for real with real yeah. stunts, with real yeah. people in real locations. Yeah. And it was so complicated. Well, when we talked to the guys from Hornblower, they were saying that um, their production people, because they finished the year that Master and Commander came out and even the difference on that line was that 10 minutes of the CGI in Master and Commander would have blown their whole budget for doing everything for real. But the other thing that you, you're going to have a difficulty with is the fact that all the soldiers, these so-called extras, all these British soldiers, were all Ukraine conscripts, weren't being paid. But they got a dollar a day. Yeah, so, so you know, the fact that they're able to fill the screen with bots, um, I don't think you'd be able to do that for the same kind of money now, would you? I mean... And not even in the Ukraine. Sorry? And not even in the Ukraine now. No, well, you couldn't go back to cr the Crimea, that's for sure. But um, it's, it's, I mean, it, you were talking about the horses and, and the problem, you know, thinking about how were they looked after. I mean, these poor lads were really, I, I mean, the one time, I can remember um, in the second series, Sharp's Company, the night shoot, the battle scenes there. I can remember going up on set there. Um, when it was absolutely bitterly cold, I mean, really freezing cold. Um, all the crew are all there in their puffer jackets and their moon boots and all the rest of it. And these conscripts were just absolutely beside themselves with these little thin red uniforms on. They were freezing to death. And there were, big, they were, there were explosions going off all over the place. Um, that, I mean, you can, those that know better can tell me, but as far as I can see, there was, there was very little flagging going on with where explosions were going to happen. And I got the feedback that the officers were so pleased because it was giving the, their troops proper combat training. But that's, that's it. They said, no, no, that's great. That's great. You know, they're, they're suffering. They're, they're, it's like the real thing for them. But I can't see that ever happening again. I can't see how anybody would ever accept that as being a... Well, I, I, I remember that, um, that um, the gaffer and the, the electricians, their weekly wage was, what, their weekly wage was uh, a daily per diem for us. Guys, finally, before we finish, oh, uh, yeah. best thing you've ever worked on? Alex? Uh, for me, yes. Uh, I, I would say it's the the highlight of, of, of anything I've worked on, for sure. Ivan? Uh, no, not quite, but close. Yeah. Phil? Well, as I said at the beginning, it was a life changer. I experienced a lot on it. I can't say it's the best thing I've ever worked on, but in terms of having fun, <laughs> right <laughs> up there. Colin? Probably yes, because it, over those four years that I did, four seasons, it taught me so much that I'm, I can see that I'm using now. I walk onto a set now and nothing's going to frighten me. Um, you walk onto a set in Russia and you go, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I don't know who we're going to have left at the end of the day. Um, so in that situation, yeah. I mean, the, the location was rough. Turkey was gorgeous. Uh, we had some good fun in Turkey. I've had some good, good shows as well. So I've done Bombs and Aliens. So, so yeah, it's, it's up there with them. <laughs> Robin? Well, for experiences, there's been nothing to touch it, really, because, I mean, all the experiences we've touched on today, for example, 
Um, I've never experienced that on any other film. I mean, you know, there are lots of other films I think are, are up there with my sort of, as it were, favourites. But this, the memories I've got from this are fantastic. And given the fact that it's 27 years ago, and I'm starting now to think about it, I'm starting now to remember the details of how we, you know, all sorts of bits and pieces that I haven't been in my head for years. It was an amazing time. And I've just, needless to say, I'm sure other people may have started doing this as well. Obviously, you didn't, Ivan, because I, I've been looking at a couple of the episodes just to have a look at them. Um, and I looked at Sharp's Company last night. And I know it's not your favourite, Jason, because I heard what you're saying, but I think I just thought, blimey, this is amazing. This is absolutely incredible. Um, the quality of the acting, the quality of the photography. I know it wasn't what you were working on, Ivan, but... It just, and I just thought, wow, I, I didn't, and, and of course, they were all feature-length films. I mean, that's what they were, and they were just being produced one after the other, after the other, after the other. Just staggering. So there's so many really high positives um, with, with, with Sharp, um, which I'm now start. I've just ordered the, the DVD set, <laughs> or the, the Blu-ray <laughs> set, just to remind myself, because I, I mean, I, I, I don't know how many, two, four, six, I think I did eight, um, eight in the end and um and just the joy going back to how i started just the joy of working with tom clegg because i just he is one of my favorite directors that i've worked with yeah he was yeah, yeah i didn't like um company only because the writer script writer charles wood didn't really acknowledge that chosen men especially harris could actually have a brain and speak properly so it was all like clipped cockney sort of so what yeah, you're saying is you didn't have enough lines well, no, no, yeah, that's true, that's true. But no, the lines we were given were very, uh, not like they'd been established by Owen Harris, the original scriptwriter of uh, Rifles and Eagles. He had established a way we'd speak and Charles Wood just didn't even um, acknowledge that. But he is a genius and Sharp's company is amazing. I just watched it recently for a side project and yeah, it's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about working on Sharp. It's, really, it's been really interesting. I know people are going to love this because people don't stop to think that for every one actor, there's what, five, six crew members behind the scenes doing stuff as well. Um, and that the actors are just a tiny part of it. So it's been great to hear all your stories. We were a massive unit. I mean, we were really, it was a really big operation uh, on the shops. I mean, to, to the extent that even the last one, our, the catering bill was 750 people uh, a day. Wow. Mm, That's amazing. incredible. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank story. you, Alex. Pleasure. Thank You're you. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Richard Hammond. He will be giving us an overview of the Second World War in the Mediterranean and telling us all about his new book, so don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 